Our reading for today is from uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 39, and 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately... He called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Nazareth, Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came, took her by the hand, and lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed, and the whole city gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed, and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. This is the second week of Epiphany. And in Epiphany, we focus on Jesus Christ's manifestation to Israel and the nations. This passage that we're reading is concerning his manifestation to Israel, not only as the Son of God, which we looked at last week in, in focusing on Jesus' baptism, but now we begin to see how Jesus begins his public ministry. And through that public ministry, the Father is demonstrating the Son as the Christ. Everything that Jesus Christ does in the Gospels is 
a demonstration of not only the father's heart, but also the son's person. That is that Jesus Christ as the son of God is truly divine. He is the Christ. He's the anointed one to sit on the throne of his father, David. And also he is the one to give us the full revelation of the father. When Jesus comes and does the things in the midst of the people, this is not Jesus Christ on a rogue mission. He says, I only do what I see the father doing. So when we see Jesus Christ healing the sick and casting out demons out of Israelites, out of the covenant people, that is the father working. The Father is doing something in the heavenlies. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, by the Holy Spirit of God who descended upon him at his baptism, sees into the heavenlies and observes what the Father is doing. Many Christians are confused upon the nature of Jesus Christ, how he is both God and man, the two natures not being confused or mixed, but rather being uh, preserved uh, holy in his person. That doctrine is, is a very fancy term called the hypostatic union. It simply means that Jesus Christ is fully God and he is fully man. But in his walking, uh, the, the New Testament plainly teaches that Jesus Christ walks by the power of the Holy Spirit. He does not exercise his divinity in his ministry. That is, he is anointed with the Holy Spirit for what? To do as Isaiah says, proclaim liberty to the captives, the gospel to the poor, healing to the brokenhearted, etc., etc. He is anointed with the Holy Spirit so that he can minister. That anointing also speaks of his role and his person, but he does not walk around exercising the power of God as God himself, but rather as a human, he operates with the Holy Spirit upon him. Jesus does this to be our example. So it's it's my opinion that when we see Christ in the old, uh, sorry, in the in the in the narrative of the Gospels, he is uh, demonstrating what it is like to walk as a believer filled with the Holy Spirit. That's a mighty call, but I think it's appropriate, especially given the consideration of the Great Commission. Jesus says, "Go into all the world and preach the good news, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching everything I've commanded you." He also, in another place describes the signs that accompany those who believe. And the signs that accompany those who believe must be present in our life, or else we're living at least at least a sub-biblical Christianity, or we're at least not living up to our potential in God. And I'm not sure about you, but I don't want to leave anything left on the field at the end of the race. I don't want to leave anything uh, behind when I look my Lord and Savior in the eyes at the end of my days. I don't want to miss out on anything He wants for me uh, and or for my ministry. One of my favorite moments, uh, I, I love the ministry of John Piper. There's this one very obscure sermon. It's not a very popular one. He hasn't, you know, promoted it that much, but he's, he's speaking to a number of seminary students after a time in which he had an extended season of uh, prayer and meditation and a little break from his uh, ministry duties. And he says that the one thing that he gained from that time was, and, and that as he approaches the end of his life is he sees the tape much more clear at the end of the race. And he is, because of that, he is starting to realize that the Lord Jesus Christ, who he will see at the end of his life is, is, is that much more present and real to him. And with that realization, he says he's found a new, a newfound appreciation for not wasting time, not wasting uh, effort, not wasting uh, energy on things that don't matter. 
I I'm of the pursuit right now. Uh, our our church operates in in uh, deliverance all the time, but very seldomly do we operate in healing. And I think that the Lord wants to bring us into that. Uh, so in this season of Epiphany, which we'll uh, be celebrating for a few weeks, we're we're going to look at and the readings that we're. Uh, uh, scheduled to read, focus on Jesus's miraculous power. This is something that we cannot do apart from him. It's only in Jesus Christ that we can do anything. Likewise, it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can minister. That's what Jesus demonstrates in his earthly ministry. So with that in mind, I want to look at five things. I want to look at the nature of the gospel. That is what Jesus Christ says in his opening words of his public ministry, repent and believe. I want to look at what that says about the gospel, that the gospel involves uh, a, a change of heart and a change of mind. I want to look at the disciples' example for obeying Christ's call. It, it's not enough to simply see Jesus Christ in the scriptures and discount the faith of everyone else. It's right to be inspired by the righteous example of saints who've gone before us. And so with that in mind, I want to look at the disciples, how they instantly follow Jesus, and how that tells us what it takes to follow Christ. I want to look at Christ's authority over evil. He demonstrates his power plainly in this chapter, and we're going to briefly mention uh, how all of Mark is related to this idea. I want to look at the deliverance and healing pairing that take place in this passage and, and kind of highlight what that might mean for us. And then finally, I want to look at the example that Christ has in his private life, in his devotional life. It is probably the case that you uh, if you if you had your best aspirations in mind, your best uh, idea of what you would love to say concerning your life, that that would include more time spent with the Lord. That that certainly is true in my life. I, I would imagine that is true in everyone's life. I want to see what Christ is saying by spending his time that way. And so uh, with that, let's get into the text. Jesus comes onto the scene and says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, Mark is recording this, and we looked last week at, at Jesus' baptism, and then he's sent into the wilderness. When Jesus Christ comes up out of the wilderness, having defeated the devil, he says to the people of Israel, he says, repent and believe the kingdom of God is near, or it's at hand, it's close, and your hand can't go too far away from you. The kingdom of God is here, it's at hand, it's, it's breaking in right now. And so with that, he says, repent and believe. Because the kingdom of God has come near to you, that is, Jesus Christ is bringing the kingdom with him, because of that, Israelites are commanded to repent and to believe. This is not a, would you like to try Jesus instead of Buddha? Would you like to try, try Jesus instead of Muhammad? He says, repent and believe. Our Christianity today is so much emotional appeal and very little understanding that there is a commandment to repent and believe. Jesus is not saying, repent and believe, consider my words like anyone else's words. He's commanding. He says, repent and believe. Repentance includes changing your mind about various things, the attractiveness of sin, certainly, but that's only able to be done by those who see the beauty of God. And that's what Jesus Christ comes to show us. He shows us the Father's heart. He says, the time is fulfilled, speaking of the time which God was waiting until the right historical events were at, at play so that Jesus Christ would have a great unveiling. 
God is wielding history, as we've talked about. He's wielding history in such a way as that Jesus Christ would be a, a beautiful, clear diamond through which light would reflect to the whole world, being contrasted on a black darkness of sin, both of the world's sin and Israel's. And so Jesus Christ shows up on the scene and he declares the time is fulfilled. He's saying that this is the culmination of a change in season. This is when the kingdom of God is breaking in. When Christ begins his ministry, he proclaims that we should do something upon hearing the gospel. And this includes believers. He's not speaking to the Gentiles. He's speaking to Israelites, covenant people, people who know God's word, people who should be living as God wishes for them to live in righteousness and holiness and faith, but they are not. So what does he say? He says, repent and believe. Likewise, Christians who have been baptized, who take communion, who participate in the life of the church, those Christians still need to repent and believe. There are areas in your life where you are holding out believing the promises of God, and you need to repent and believe. Christ calls us to turn away from our sin and to change our way of thinking and to believe. Repentance does not just include a change of behaviors. A change of behaviors is only possible after a change in value systems. Whatever you do in your life, whether it's uh, work hard, work lazily, sin, live righteously, whatever you do, you have a value for it. I've never seen, well, except in medical emergencies, I've never seen anyone eat and not actually want to eat. I've never seen that. I mean, surely there's someone, possibly, but the, the reason why people eat is they're hungry. They want to satisfy their stomach. They have a valuation for, I want to be full. <laughs> they eat because they, they're hungry. Likewise, the repentance that accords with the announcement that the kingdom of God is here is a repentance from believing all terrible accusations against God, that God is far off, that God is not involved in, in human history, he's not involved in my life, he's not involved in my, my family's life. Repentance, upon hearing that the kingdom of God is at hand, includes repenting from believing, oh, that situation is impossible, this business thing is just a mess, it'll end, this cancer is just, you know done, there's end of the story, that's the final chapter. That's what repentance means. It means to change your thinking. Now, does that mean that we see every story play out as if, you know, everything's perfect like we are in heaven? No, that doesn't, it doesn't mean that every problem in life is magically dis disappears, but there is no problem in heaven. There's no problem in heaven, and the kingdom of God, otherwise translated as the kingdom of heaven, is coming near, Christ says. So, this call to repent and believe is not simply, it's not make-believe. You don't just start thinking, oh, everything's perfect in the world. It's not an, an ignorance of, of sin or of problems, but rather it's, an, it's a change of mind about God's heart in the midst of those things. People who encounter uh, tragedy in life, sickness, uh, emotional breakup, friends who betray you, spouses who leave, those things are real, but what you are called to repent on is you're, you're called to repent of the belief that God doesn't care about this situation, that God is not in, interested in me. God is demonstrating his interest in Israel. Israel, remember, we have highlighted over and over again, she goes into exile, she rebels against God, she worships idols, but God here is sending his son to deliver them from their, from their iniquity and from their demons. 
And so God is demonstrating mighty interest in them. He's not discarding them. He's not dismissing them. So repentance, the change of attitude which loves sin, also includes repentance of valuations of God, accusations against him or, or uh, misunderstandings of his nature. So God is sending his son to redeem Israel. He's on a mission to gather her back. So Christ calls us to turn away from sin, but also to turn away from the wrong motives and wrong evaluations of the, the nature and heart of the Father. And in fact, Christ comes to demonstrate that God is the Father. Uh, before Christ, the idea that God is a Father is very seldomly mentioned, although it is over and over again. It, it's not very clear, and it certainly wasn't an emphasis of the religious leaders of the day. So this work that work, that value system changing, is not just a work of the mind, it's also a work of the heart. You cannot simply read a list of bullet points that describe Jesus and deity and what he did on the cross and check them off line by line and be a Christian. Your faith is not a set of facts that you know in your head. Your faith includes that, but it is not merely ideas that you believe. It includes heart realities. When, when Christ says to believe, he means to transfer your trust from your works to his works, from your opinions of, of God's nature to God's revelation of himself in his son, Jesus. That's what it means to believe. It means to trust with the heart, to understand with the mind and to trust with the heart. That is what full Christian repentance includes. The Christian gospel is not a set of facts, and salvation that Christ brings to us is a holistic salvation. When Christ comes onto the scene, he does not say to these people, be blessed and be filled, and then send them on their way and hope that God will help them. He delivers them. He sees sick people and he heals them. He sees demonic people and he uh, delivers them. This is Christ backing up his love with action. This is true love. This is manifest love. The salvation that he brings is holistic. Likewise, we should expect that as we walk with the Lord, that he wishes to touch every dimension of life. It is not enough for you to have a good life in God and yet have horrible relationships. Those should fall in line with the truth of the gospel, that God is love and that he sent his Holy Spirit so that we would operate in love with our brothers, that the first and second commandment are equally great. That's what the the idea of every area of your life coming into alignment with the gospel includes. That doesn't mean you'll be rich. That doesn't mean everything will go right. That doesn't mean that car accidents won't happen. But it simply means that your life in general, in trend, should become more whole over time with Christ. That's what I believe progressive sanctification to include. Now, do we follow Christ because of the benefits? No, because we're ignorant of the benefits before he brings his salvation. But in this chapter, there is no way to say that the salvation which Christ brings is intellectual or faith, uh, the faith of the heart alone, because every time there's a manifestation in the physical realm, there's a deliverance from demons, or there's a healing and a, a sickness that leaves. In fact, there's even a remark that the people in the synagogue say, what is this, a new teaching, and with authority? Through the example of these disciples who join Jesus after he begins to, to gather them and call them, this example should inspire you uh, just amazingly so. These disciples have been trained by their fathers to do a job. Uh, if you have a son, most likely your son or your daughter 
uh, but mostly sons, because sons are, are wired this way a little bit more, they will want to be at least interested in or knowing what you, the father does, their father does. Um, and, and so here, these sons, it, it's, it's not a, a coincidence that their fathers are mentioned here. These sons are being trained up to be exactly like their, their dad. They have a job to do. Their dad is a fisherman, and so they are fishermen. They're being trained in and brought into the family business. And Jesus Christ comes, and he says to follow me. And then these people, these men, decide, yes, following Jesus Christ is worth leaving my inheritance and my vocation. That's inspiring. Jesus says, follow me. Mark uses this word over and over again. If you had to summarize Mark in one word, it might be immediately. Verse 18, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. Everything in Mark is just breaking in. I think that's Mark's point is that the gospel is breaking into this time, this space reality. The gospel is at hand. It's immediate. It's coming. And so they leave their nets. Now, that's a radical response. I'm sure they understood who Jesus was in a little dimension. I don't think any of the disciples, upon meeting Jesus, except for a few, recognize him as the Christ, which is Nathaniel's great example, uh, because over and over again, he calls them, you know, he, he asks them who they are, and, and we see over and over again, the disciples have these new revelations years into walking with Christ, that he actually is the Son of God. They probably understand him as a wise teacher at this point, although some of them may understand there's something different about this particular teacher. But still, their response to, to, the, to the small glimpse of the revelation of who Christ is that they have, they respond wholeheartedly. They respond immediately. This should inspire us. If doing the bidding of an earthly king is an honor, certainly doing the bidding of a heavenly king is no sacrifice at all. If you were asked tomorrow to come and, and give an address to the United Nations, I would think and hope that you would feel mightily honored. Or if you were given a special commission by the governor or the president, you would probably do it, even if it was mildly inconvenient or kind of boring, because of the nature of the honor that attends that role. This is what the king of the world, the king of the universe, is doing for these men. He's saying, come and follow me. He's giving them a divine commission. This is no sacrifice at all. This is what he does for each one of us as well. He calls you to follow him. He says, if anyone would come up after me, if anyone would walk like I walked, let him take up his cross and deny himself. Certainly, denying yourself includes immediately responding with, yes, to the call to follow him. So these disciples are inspiring, and it shows us the worth and per, uh, the worth of Jesus Christ. That is, the disciples, no matter what they thought about Jesus, he was somehow different. Whether they understood him to be the Son of God or simply a great teacher, that's not clear. But what is clear is whatever revelation they had, they didn't dismiss any of it. They didn't suppress any of it. So these disciples follow him immediately. Jesus is building a team of people. We'll see over the, the weeks that these are 12 apostles, likewise being the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus here is invading Galilee with a military conquest. He's entering into the land, but this military conquest is not killing people and driving people out of the land, but rather driving darkness out of the land. That's what he does when he goes to Galilee and then later into Capernaum in verse 21. 
Jesus goes right into the synagogue and he demonstrates his authority over evil spirits. Jesus is not playing a religious game. He is playing for keeps. He goes into the synagogue in verse 22, and they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. The Pharisees and Sadducees claimed to deliver from demons. But in this, in this example here, a demon speaks out of a man's mouth, out of a man's body, and Jesus commands it to be silent, and Jesus commands it to leave that person, and it immediately leaves. The Pharisees and Sadducees created these shams of exorcism that were fake exorcisms that didn't include any power, it didn't include any deliverance, and the person who was going through this exorcism had to pay money, and afterwards was probably no better off. In fact, they were deceived into thinking that they were okay. But they're still under the weight of the iniquity that they've incurred. Israel has multiplied her sins and whorings before the Lord, and she has brought on all of this oppression onto herself. And this isn't just a national thing. It affects individual Israelites, and that's where Jesus comes and delivers individuals. Of course, this will extend beyond individuals in just a little bit. We see that Jesus speaks to the whole crowd. The whole town shows up at the door. It's like an undoing of when the angels come to Lot. And God here is demonstrating extreme light coming in, and that light is attractive to the people. This is at least how I want to live. I, I'm, I'm unsatisfied by people just hearing the gospel, making no decision for Christ, no change in their life for Christ, not being delivered from their sins, not being healed from the things that in, are, are causing them uh, strife, pain, frustration. I, I believe that God wishes to highlight the authority of Jesus Christ through deliverance and through healing. And I hope that our church uh, is going that direction. I think we are. And, and so this is, this is mighty ammo in our um, spiritual magazine, if you will. Jesus Christ exercises the demon and commands it out, and it leaves immediately. This is, this is amazing. If you, if you believe, uh, there are some people who believe that Christians or people who've said a sinner's prayer can have no uh, demon in them. I, I want to I tell you that I have seen people who I know to be believers get delivered from demons. It's, it's a matter of experience thing. And as, Paul, uh, as Jesus says to the um, Syrophoenician woman, it's only those who sit at the table who are worthy to eat the bread, not the, not the dogs. He gives her a chance to be offended, and then he heals anyway because she doesn't get offended, but rather demonstrates faith. It's your right as a Christian to have deliverance. So if you become a Christian, and, and before you were a Christian, you were just a Gentile, you were a hater of God, a spiritual Gentile, not a, not a biological Gentile. You, you hated God, you, had nothing, you wanted nothing to do with him. You come and into Christ, you become a Christian. Well, the demons don't just leave right away. That's, that's not clear from any portion of Scripture. There's no doctrine of Scripture that backs up that claim. So what happens? Well, maybe they leave over time as you're filled with the Holy Spirit and begin to walk in light. But my, my understanding from how I've seen people discipled and the, the deliverances that I've been a part of is that Christians permit darkness in their life and they don't have to because they're ignorant of the understanding that only Christians have the right to be delivered. So, Jesus delivers this demon and sends it out, and he begins to demonstrate that he's king. Now, 
why does Jesus tell the demon to shut up? Now, if you don't allow your kids to say that, that word, I'm sorry, but Jesus tells the demon to be quiet. He tells the demon to be quiet because of what? Uh, because of what reason? Because even though they are sinful, they know the truth, but Jesus doesn't want sinful ministers, sinful proclamations, sinful attestations to who he is. He wants glorious, redeemed people to tell of who he is. And it's also not the time for his unveiling uh, in that way. So Jesus tells this demon to shut up, and he tells this demon to leave, and it happens. Jesus Christ has authority, that's the, the badge on the officer, and he has the power, that's the gun or the baton on the officer. Power and authority go hand in hand in Jesus Christ's ministry. It is not enough that you intellectually believe that Jesus Christ has authority over demonic spirits without also seeing Jesus Christ wield that power over demonic spirits. So Jesus begins to do this, not just in the synagogues, but also it spreads out from the people. Deliverance should not exist just in the house of God. It should be part of ongoing ministry outside of the church. Notice that it takes place in a synagogue. Again, I'm trying to help you understand that there is no biblical justification for believing that Christians can have cannot have demons. Paul says that if I take the members of Christ and join them with a harlot, as in it's possible to do that, you know, then, then he would be ashamed. He, he's telling people that they shouldn't be a prostitute, but he doesn't say that because you're part of Christ, you can't be joined to the prostitute. He says that you shouldn't do that. Likewise, we understand that Christians shouldn't permit ongoing influence of evil spirits in their life. He doesn't say, it doesn't say anywhere in the Bible that that's impossible. And I don't even know of any place that you could infer that from. If you wish to uh, defend that, I would love to find out where you would uh, get that idea from. And I would love to examine that evidence because I believe the Bible is uh, clear for all of life. So that being said, Jesus here is going into the synagogue and also he is doing this in the house of Israel. He is not doing this. He's not going to Syria to do this. He's not going down to Egypt to do this. He's doing this in Israel. Jesus Christ demonstrates his authority over evil spirits, and that authority did not pass away. In fact, upon the resurrection taking place, when Jesus is about to ascend into the heavens, he says that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him, therefore we go. All authority. That doesn't mean some authority. That doesn't mean authority over situations that are already pretty nice and everything already looks like it's going rightly. He says all authority. And so Jesus Christ uh, uh, deposits that authority in the apostles. And likewise, the apostles begin to spread that through the laying on of hands and the giving of the Holy Spirit, which happened at Pentecost. That authority didn't change. Jesus Christ hasn't left the throne of God. He is still on the throne, and he still wants to heal and deliver. Mark's recording of Christ's public ministry in the, uh, in the text is a one-for-one -one balance of healing and deliverance. What do I mean by that? Every time you see deliverance, if you haven't ever done this, I, I really recommend it. Every time you see deliverance mentioned in the Bible, uh, in, in the book of Mark, put down a number, put like D1. And then the next time you see it mentioned, put D2, and then D3. And then every time you see healing, mentioned, physical healing, put an H1 and then an H2. Now, there are times where the Ds outweigh the Hs, but overall, 
at the end of the book, and tracking mostly throughout the book, Mark mentions deliverance and healing in a one-to-one ratio. Every time there's a deliverance, there's a healing. Or maybe there's two deliverances and then a healing. Or two healings, then a deliverance. It's a one-to-one ratio. Mark is trying to communicate that these are both you know, two sides of the same coin. This is true salvation. This is what it means to be healed. This is what it means to be delivered. So Mark is demonstrating this one-for-one balance of of healing and deliverance, and it it takes place in both this passage as well as the rest of the text. But Jesus, when he ministers, does not simply speak to the final destiny of a person's life when they die. Jesus does not appeal to, have you thought about where you're going at the end of your days? He appeals to repent and believe, for the kingdom of God has come in your midst. He wishes to demonstrate the heart of the Father. The heart of the Father is not one who is concerned with your final eternity state and and apathetic towards what you're going through right now. Verse 32, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, not possessed by demons, oppressed by demons. Who does every human on the earth belong to? Jesus Christ. Through him, to him, and for him, all things are made, right? Demons do not own people, although we do understand that people who have not been born again are children of Satan. That is, they're of their father, the devil. Jesus calls some of the Pharisees that. But those who are of faith are children of the Lord. But that doesn't mean that Satan has a title deed on their life. Satan doesn't own them. He didn't make them. God made them. They are human beings who bear his image, and God is jealous for the deposit of his image on each person. So they are children of Satan in this regard. They follow after Satan's ways, his desires, but they are certainly belonging to God, even though they're not God's people. God owns them, and that's why he has the right to judge them. He doesn't judge things that aren't his. He only judges things that are his. So, Jesus is demonstrating the right claim that God has on these people, and this healing that takes place is a miraculous healing. It goes throughout every city. All those who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases. So, there's two plural nouns. Mark is trying to say if he could have highlighted it or underscored it, he would have. Many who were sick with various diseases. He's not saying that Jesus is only dealing with coughs. This is what we think mostly today. We, we pray a lot of times for headaches, coughs, flus. We don't pray a lot for, with faith. We don't pray with faith for various things, broken bones, you know, what, what have you. The things that seem more serious, the things that seem that God can't touch or God is unwilling to do. But here he says many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. This is the authority that Jesus Christ has. He can command anything he wants, and that is beautiful. Christ heals those who are in the synagogue just as well as the public square. It's, he's not limited by the scenario. He heals, uh, and he, he demonstrates uh, the power uh, in the open. This is not something that should be limited to the church. Although I do believe that it's right to bring people into the message of the gospel through preaching and also the life of the church, certainly the ministry that Christ has 
uh, demonstrated in this passage is to gather people in such a way as that they would recognize who he is. Public proclamation of the gospel that merely tries to reason people into the kingdom will not sustain them. So he performs this ministry among the people of God, and this ministry, therefore, is still required today. We are now the people of God, and we, you and I, have been oppressed at times by demonic spirits, and we need deliverance from those things. Nothing in the scriptures says that gifts cease, nor does it say that demons have declared a truce. They are not, uh, they didn't lay down their arms. When Jesus sends the 70 into the towns, uh, they come back and they report, even the demons submit to us in your name, right? And, and what Jesus does is he says that I was standing and, I, and behold, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Well, what does Paul say in the epistles? He says that we war against spiritual powers in heavenly places. Wait a second. I thought Satan fell from heaven. Jesus, Jesus told us that. Jesus told us that Satan fell from heaven. He saw Satan being cast down for a particular time and a particular place, not over the whole realm. There are, there are places in the earth that are more or less oppressed by Satan. I would submit to you that possibly going to Vegas or D.C. might feel a little different than if you went to a city with a great ministry in it. Because of what reason? Because the church has been given a mission by God. Paul says that we are told to proclaim the mysteries of God in the heavenly places. That is what the church's goal is. And so there is a spiritual battle that is still taking place for the believer. Though Satan has been defeated, this is, as we often mention in this church, a mop-up operation. There is still work to be done. There are still battles to be fought. Christianity is not coasting after the cross. It is a continuation of Jesus' ministry. So, this ministry being required today, we should find out how do we live in it. It's my opinion that you are called by God to both proclaim his goodness, to show his favor, also to proclaim healing and deliverance. And, and the gospel appeal, the, how we demonstrate the authority of Jesus Christ, is not just examples from our life. I believe that your life should have character. It should have uh, respectability. You should, your life should be an example of Jesus Christ. But those examples are only seen by those who are looking for them. The examples that are seen or the, the demonstrations that are seen which demand attention that people can't ignore are the power gifts and the things which God did through his son Jesus. There are people on the earth who live in this way, There are ministries that I know of, have been to, have spoken with, and they talk about their journey out of unbelief and into this lifestyle, into this belief, uh, and and they they say plainly that it was God bringing them into it. It wasn't their, it wasn't just something they stumbled into. It was something that they heard from the Lord and and worked towards. So it's my opinion that Jesus Christ, what He does at the end of this chapter or the end of our passage today. It shows us how he walks in power. And also Jesus Christ's demonstration of power and what he does here, in the, as we're about to look at, shows us the infinite worth of spending time alone with the Father. We are so inundated with busyness. I mean, I, I confess that I allow my life to be busy, and I shouldn't. But probably you do too. 
what Christ does in this passage is he demonstrates that he runs away from attention. He runs away from popularity and he runs towards the father. That tells us two things. That's where Christ gets his power from. And also that is where, uh, that is where he shows the worth and beauty of God. That is the father is so uh, loving that Christ wants to be in his presence. Christ has an understanding of, of the, the fellowship that comes in only the secret place. Verse 35, Mark 1, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Verse 36, And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. 37, And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. Do you do that? I know that I don't do that as much as I should. When people want your attention, when they want your opinion, when they want you to be involved, are you willing to, to leave that? Are you willing to go to a quiet place? Remember, Jesus speaks concerning the Father that the Father rewards those openly who seek him in private. This is what Christ tells us in the Sermon on the Mount concerning prayer. It's better to go and be with the Father. That is how Jesus Christ walks in the power that he exercises in these passages. We don't look at Christ's example and compare ours and despair. I've said a few times that your life and my life, we Upon looking at these examples, we, we have some things to mend, right? But we do not look at Christ's example and despair. That is not what a gospel-informed response is to seeing the example of the disciples of Christ in these passages. We do not despair, but rather we know that it's God's grace to call us to a higher, higher standard. It's God's grace to inform us of his will so that our life would begin to look like his will. It would be God's judgment if he left us in ignorance. It's most loving for you to tell someone that they've got something stuck in their teeth. It's very unloving to let them walk into a meeting like that. It's extremely loving for God to point out to you the new standard, the standard that he's calling you to, the, the place that he's bringing you into in maturity. It's not appropriate for you, and it's not God's heart that you would despair over that and think, man, I can't be like this. I can't ever, I mean, I can't even get my shoes tied every day of the week. How can I ever walk like this? It, that is not the right response. The right response is understanding that God wants this for you. The eyes of the Lord search to and fro throughout the earth, seeking a heart that is completely his. He's not wanting someone to be a robot. He's not some, wanting someone to strive to become powerful or to become a good shining light for the rest of the dark world. He wants a heart that would be his. And Christ's example shows us that that is really the pinnacle of what's at stake. The power gifts, as attractive as they are, do not outweigh Christ's affection for being alone with the Lord. But it's not appropriate to have time alone with the Lord and never do the other things. It's God's good pleasure to give us the kingdom, and his admonishments are not chastisements. His judgment on you would be turning you over to futility and frustration and boring. You know, if you ever think to yourself, I'm bored, well, <laughs> repent. <laughs> the Lord is beautiful, and Christ's running away from the crowds to spend time with the Father shows us that beauty. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son. He is marvelous. He is beautiful. He is worth everything. Lord, we ask that you would move on us, that you would move on our hearts, that we would give up everything for Christ, that there would be nothing left 
uh, on the field, so to speak, that we would give it all and that we would see spending time with you in prayer as the chief reward of Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, deliver us from apathy, deliver us from complacency, deliver us from being okay with not being a, uh, a person who walks in power, who never speaks about your, your love, your glory, your goodness. God, bring our church into a season of visitation that would uh, be accompanied by spiritual and physical healing. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.